Luke chapter 10. And this morning we find ourselves in verse 25, and we'll be working our way down to 37. And at the center of that passage is the well-known parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up, and this is a a religious lawyer. He uh, uh, disputes religious cases. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, Jesus that is, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, uh, what is written in the law? How, how do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among some robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring uh, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, uh, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Thus far, God's word. Well, without a doubt, the story of the Good Samaritan is one of the most well-known accounts in all of the Bible. And we know that because it is readily and universally recognized by those who read the Bible as well as those who don't. Uh, Consider these headlines from just this past week, Uh, this past Thursday, Nashville. Good Samaritan pulls driver from fiery crash. Uh, This past Tuesday, Chicago, Good Samaritan helps student in Lincoln Park. And again on Tuesday in Orange Beach, Alabama, Good Samaritan tries to rescue teen out of rough waters. Or consider all the hospitals that include Good Samaritan in their name. I mean, you can find them throughout California. Uh, In fact, PIH has included Good Samaritan in their network across the country, and around the world. So the story of the Good Samaritan is well known, but when you look at it in its context, 
you see that it's a story that doesn't stand alone because the story of the Good Samaritan is actually a story within a story. It's kind of like Aladdin's lamp or Alibaba and the 40 thieves or the voyages of Sinbad the sailor, which are all set within the larger story of a 1001 Arabian Nights. So that while each small story stands on its own, they're all enriched when understood within the context of that larger story. And so it is with the story of the Good Samaritan. It's enriched by the context of the larger story in which it finds itself. But before we look at that story, we need to remind ourselves of the overall story, beginning with the book of Luke, the key to which is found in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where we see that the aim of this book is to present an orderly historical account to increase the reader's certainty concerning the life and ministry of Jesus. Then there's the material around our passage for this morning, which is uh, throughout chapter 10. And that tells us three things about which Luke wants us to be certain. Number one, this is in verses 1 through 24. It's where we were last week. Uh, Jackson took us there. Luke wanted us to be certain of who Jesus is. And we see in that passage that he's the Lord, he's the Son of God, and he's the one through whom and by whom the kingdom of God has been brought near. And we see those three things multiple times throughout those 24 verses. And then there's the passage in which we find ourselves this week, 25 through 37, where Luke wants us to be certain of how to respond to this Jesus about whom Jackson preached last week. And then in verses 38 through 42, at which we'll look next week, I think Rob Lister will be taking us there. Luke wants us to be certain of how to relate to this Jesus about whom Jackson preached last week. So in short, last week's passage was intended to clarify our theology of Jesus. Well, today's passage, as well as the one for next week, is intended to clarify our practical understanding of that theology, the way it all works out in terms of how we respond and relate to Jesus. And that brings us to our passage for this morning, which reveals that how I respond to others is inextricably connected to how I respond to God. Since how I understand the story of the Good Samaritan, the little story in this passage, it is entirely related to how I understand the storyteller in the larger story in this passage. And so the question we want to answer this morning is, what does my response to the story of the Good Samaritan reveal about my understanding of Jesus? Is my view of Jesus in this week's passage shaped by the theology that was revealed in last week's passage, where Jesus is presented to us as God himself? Well, we're going to get an answer 
to that question as follows. First, by looking at the opening bit of the big story uh, here, that's in verses 24 through, or rather 25 through 29. Then we'll look at the story of the Good Samaritan, that's in 30 through 35. And then we'll finish off by looking at the closing bit of the big story in verses 36 and 7. So that's the way forward this morning. We'll begin with the opening bit of this big story here, beginning in verse 25. And the first one onto whom the spotlight falls is a lawyer who among first century Jews is highly regarded. In fact, one scholar refers to lawyers as the undisputed spiritual leaders of the people. So a 21st century equivalent may be the pastor who is also a scholar or, or the preacher who is also a professor held in, in high regard. So on the one hand, uh, the lawyer stands tall among his people. But on the other hand, he is, he's highly suspect. And we see that right out of the box there in 25 where we read, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test. Of course, that's no different than what we've been seeing throughout Luke up to this point. In chapter 5, lawyers accused Jesus of blasphemies and grumbled about the kind of gatherings uh, within which he himself. In chapter 6, lawyers challenged Jesus regarding uh, the way he eschewed uh, Jewish table etiquette and the way he conducted his overall ministry. In chapter 7, lawyers alleged that Jesus was a phony. As a group, lawyers didn't view Jesus as he was presented in verses 1 through 24. That's why their tendency was to put down Jesus, and to raise up themselves. In fact, that's explicitly stated in chapter 16, verse 15. So what was this lawyer's test for Jesus? Well, the test was presented with at least a superficial degree of respect. Uh, to begin with, uh, the lawyer stood, which was uh, the way that a student addressed uh, a teacher, and he even refers to Jesus as a teacher. And then he um, puts to Jesus a, a common theological question. You see it there at the end of verse 25. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And now the spotlight falls on Jesus, who immediately responds to the lawyer's question. But before we look at the stuff of Jesus' response, um, I, I think it would be very instructive to uh, pay some attention to the shape of his response. Notice that Jesus didn't respond with an answer, but rather he responded with a question of his own. One that wasn't directed at the lawyer, but directed the lawyer to the Bible. And Jesus' reply, I think, is especially instructive to us, at least for a couple of reasons. First, it reveals Jesus' reliance on the Scripture. The Word incarnate relied on the Word written. That's pretty interesting. 
And we're, we're going to see that again in chapter 24. When the resurrected Christ uh, doesn't prove his resurrection by way of holes in his hands or, or scars on his brow, but rather by way of the word. I mean, it's remarkable. Second, it reveals that the best answer to a question like this one doesn't get to the Bible at some point, but ideally begins with the Bible. A fellow with whom I used to work, along with his wife, some years ago had a neighbor couple over for dinner. And this couple knew that uh, my colleague was a pastor, and so they came loaded with their questions. And after dinner, they sat down, and the coffee was poured, and the neighbors began to ask, so what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And my colleague replied by saying, well, let's see what the Bible has to say. So a couple of weeks later, the neighbors were invited back over for a meal, and afterwards, a coffee was poured, and here come the questions again. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? And my colleague replied, well, Let's see what the Bible has to say. So they turn to the scripture. And on this went, over the course of the months, the neighbors would come over and with them would be their questions. What do you think? Well, let's see what the Bible says. And then finally, uh, the couple comes over one evening and uh, this time, instead of beginning with, what do you think about, they asked, what does the Bible say about dot, dot, dot? And I remember my colleague saying to me later, at that point, I knew we were getting somewhere. (laughs) And that lesson would serve us all well this morning. When somebody asks you what you think about marriage or end times or uh, salvation or whatever, do your best Not to lead with, well, I think, but rather, let's see what the Bible says. Because answering in that way can make all the difference between a tennis match and a rock fight. In a tennis match, each person plays the ball off the court off a common surface. In in a rock fight, each person (laughs) rears back and hurls that stone with as much might as they can muster up. And it can get bloody. That's why in Acts 17, whether he was with Jews in Thessalonica or Greeks in Athens, Paul reasoned with the people from the Scripture. Now, you may say to yourself, but I don't know the Bible well enough to do that. And that's okay. You don't have to memorize it. You just have to read it. Because reading leads to familiarity. Familiarity leads to confidence. And confidence leads to effectiveness. I have a friend who is all things Star Wars. I mean, this guy has seen all 12 movies, some of them twice. You can come to him and ask, hey, did so-and-so do this and that? And, and he'd stop and think, no, no. I think that was actually in the third uh, installment. He hasn't memorized all the scripts, but 
he can parrot a lot of the lines. Nancy and I did that the other night. We watched uh, Chariots of Fire. It was the Friday night movie on KCET. I mean, you know, how many times have I watched that movie over the last 40 years? And both of us are speaking lines before they're, you know, spoken on, on the screen. That's how it is with Bible reading. The, the more you read it, the, the more familiar you become with it, and the more effective you are in communicating it. So Jesus responds to the lawyer's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, with a question of his own that takes the lawyer straight to the scriptures. So take a look there at verse 26, where Jesus asks, what's written in the law? I mean, how how do you read it? In other words, you're a lawyer. What does the law say? And so the lawyer, he thinks about it. He draws from Deuteronomy 6. He draws from Leviticus 19. And he replies there in verse 27, Well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength, and your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, man, you answered correctly. Now, just quick sidebar here. Why did Jesus approve of the lawyer's answer even though he said nothing about, because this has to do with eternal life, the Christ, the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, all that kind of stuff. And we, we forget, uh, regularly forget, that the book of Luke, even though it's in the New Testament, all these events are taking place in Old Testament days. That, that, that is to say the law has yet to be fulfilled in Christ by way of his death and resurrection and glorification. So what made the lawyer's answer acceptable to Jesus? Well, these, these two texts, which he quotes here from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, uh, together are referred to as the great commandment. The great commandment. And, and, and they're exemplified by this robust love for God, a love with one's whole person, mind, soul, strength, and, and then an active love in response to this one to one's neighbor right? As one scholar has put it, a love from the heart responds with the hands. A love that elsewhere in the New Testament bespeaks an authentic saving faith. And that's what made the lawyer's answer acceptable to Jesus. So he said, you have answered correctly. And then he adds, do this and you'll live. In other words, Put it to work. Practice what you preach. End of conversation. Except it's not. Because the lawyer continued to test Jesus. And Luke tells us why there in verse 29. It says, he desired to justify himself. Funny how that goes. I mean, the lawyer was there to test Jesus. Jesus turns the tables and now tests the lawyer, who in some way, shape, or form was found wanting. We're not told how or why, but he was. And so the lawyer comes back to Jesus and he asks, 
Well, who is my neighbor? Fair enough, until you start thinking about that question. What kind of question is that? I mean, on the one hand, the lawyer should have known the answer. Uh, Leviticus 19, 33 and 34 indicates that among God's people, neighbors include those who are both inside and outside. But on the other hand, the lawyer probably hoped that Jesus would minimize the expectations of that law or even go so far as to delineate for him who were his non-neighbors. Those uh, from whom the lawyer could withhold his love. But as one scholar put it, Jesus refuses to turn people into a subspecies or things that can be ignored. So instead of answering the question, the lawyer, or rather Jesus, tells a story. And that's the story of the Good Samaritan. Beginning in verse 30, you got the setting there. It's on a road between Jerusalem and Jericho. In fact, it didn't occur to me until earlier this week. I've actually walked down that road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It begins uh, high up in the hills at a place called, interestingly enough, the Good Samaritan Inn, which uh, when I took the hike was nothing more than a bus stop, a rural bus stop. And then it continues on down, 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 ending below sea level at the town of Jericho. And uh, as I recall it, the road is cut into this deep canyon. The, the higher elevations, brown and dry, but down in the bottom of the canyon. I remember three things. I remember a lot of water. I remember a, a, a verdant uh, vegetation and a lot of bees. And uh, that was John the Baptist's country, by the way. And I remember John the Baptist ate honey, didn't he? Well, there were the bees to prove that there was honey somewhere out there. So that's the setting. Now we got a problem. There's a, a, a man who meets some robbers on that road. The man is stripped, he's beaten, he's fleeced, and he's left for dead. But gratefully, help is just around the corner because Jesus is now going to provide the solution to this man's problems. First, verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest who was, a priest was going down the road. Ah, that's good. That's good. Priests were viewed as the height of, of piety. Uh, the law encouraged them to assist in situations just like this one, Leviticus chapter 19. But Look what happened. We read on. And when the priest saw him, that, that is the man who was beaten and robbed, he passed by. Oh, that's not good. But all's not lost because second, verse number 32, we read, so likewise a Levite was going down the road. That's, that's good. Uh, Levites were assistants to the priests. They were workers in the temple. But again, look, look what happens here. When the Levite came to the place and, and saw the naked and bloodied man, he too passed on the other side. That's not good. 
So these two plot twists were certainly surprise to the lawyer, uh, no doubt those who were listening in, um, especially since priests and Levites were poised to answer this kind of a problem. Their, 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 job, their roles were pounded out on the anvil of character. So these are the kind of guys whom you'd expect to do something about a situation like that. But as surprising and as disappointing as that all was, there was still hope. Because in a story like this, where any kind of story of this sort where you have a priest and a Levite, you usually have a third person, and that is the people of Israel, who together, all three, uh, are emblematic of the nation itself. So to, to put it in American parlance, George Washington didn't do anything, and Abe Lincoln followed him and didn't do anything, then you can bet Uncle Sam with that brawny bald eagle on his shoulder, he's going to come around the corner, and he's going to see this, and he's going to save the day. But the story yields an even greater surprise. And the surprise is this. The next one who happened onto this beaten and burgled Samaritan, or, or, uh, man is a Samaritan. Now today, uh, the shock, the, the surprise of that is entirely lost because, as we mentioned earlier, uh, Samaritan is uh, forever tied to the adjective good. But in the eyes of a Jew, Samaritans were anything but good. Now, to be sure, they, they worshiped the same God, they observed the same liturgy, they read the same scripture, but Samaritans had this mongrelized genealogy, a compromised theology, that is the way they applied God's word, and they worshiped in a renegade sanctuary. So for a Jew, Samaritans were to be avoided at all costs. If a priest and a Levite couldn't help the dying man in Jesus' story, then the arrival of, of, of the Samaritans singled, uh, signaled the death knell. <laughs> it's all over for them. In fact, one Jewish scholar said he, he doubts the historicity of this parable because no one would ever include a Samaritan in a story like that. For me, the depth of disdain between Jews and Samaritans captured by a man whom I knew. He's now dead. Um, his people group, which he was a part, uh, actually he was a part, he survived a massacre against his people group over a hundred years ago in another part of the world. And he lived to almost a hundred. And as long as I knew him, he couldn't say the name of that people group or anyone in that people group who massacred his people group without adding Tuh! from the heart. So with the arrival of this Tuh! despised Samaritan, things for the dying man have gone from bad to worse. But what does a Samaritan do? He does everything that the best of Israel didn't. While the priest and the Levite moved away from the man, the Samaritan moved 
in on him. And he did so because, as we see here in verse 33, the Samaritan had compassion. Uh, I, I don't mention Greek words very often from the pulpit, but this one is worthy of mention. It's the word splachnon. <laughs> splachnon. And splachnon, it, it means compassion, but it, uh, it has to do with your visceral parts. And that word sounds like something that's contained down here in your, your visceral, my, my splachnon is like getting me. But the ancients believed that, that, that the seed of your emotions were there in, in your bowels, in your belly, in, in, in your splachnon. This man saw this and he felt it in his gut. But not only did he feel something, he actually rolled up his sleeves and he did something about it. So he approached the man and he bandaged the man and he treated the man with oil to soothe his wounds and wine to disinfect them. Both those items, along with the act of bandaging, was fraught with symbolism in Jesus' story. You see, binding a wound is a prophetic image for salvation. See that in the book of Isaiah and the book of Jeremiah. Oil and wine were an integral part of temple worship. And so as one writer puts it, on the one hand, the Samaritan who pours oil on the wound pours out the true offering acceptable to God since it's worth more than ten thousands of rivers of oil, all of Micah 6, 6 through 8. But on the other hand, the priest and the Levite, outside the temple and without their props, appear dysfunctional. But Jesus goes on here. The Samaritan also transported the man and housed the man and paid for the whole thing, not reluctantly, but emphatically. And, 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 and we see that at the end of verse 35. So this little story uh, within a larger story of Jesus and the lawyer is really, it's a, a tour de force where Jesus puts down the members of the privileged class who knew the Bible but did nothing in response to it and elevates a member of the rejected class who couldn't pass a Bible exam, I mean, at least in an orthodox sort of a way, but followed it even from the heart. And so that's the story within the story. That's the story of the Good Samaritan, which brings us to, to the close of the larger story the climax of this encounter between Jesus and the lawyer. Now remember, the lawyer had asked a question. Who is my neighbor? But Jesus responded not with an answer, but the story of the good Samaritan and one final question. He asked, well, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? You see, for Jesus, the question isn't, who is my neighbor? Whom do I have to serve? Um, uh, who out there is beneath my level of dignity? I mean, when you, when you think of it, as, as I begin <laughs> grinding on this, it's diabolical. Really. It's diabolical since it implies I can withhold my services and even leave one to die. 
if they're too different than me, too icky, too young, too old. Rather, for Jesus, the question isn't who is my neighbor, but am I a neighbor? Because that's definitely where he ends this thing. That's why he asked the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer's answer, I mean, he can't even say Samaritan. He can't even say the word. He says, um, the one who showed him mercy. I find it interesting. In verse 33, Jesus describes the Samaritan as having compassion. And he did have compassion. But we all have compassion on any one of a number of persons and, and, and situations and fail to act, right? But in verse 37, the lawyer describes the Samaritan as having mercy. If compassion is something that you feel, then mercy is something that you do. Mercy proves that you have compassion. Mercy is compassion with hands and feet. It gets the job done. Mercy is compassion in action. And at the very least, the lawyer put that together. So as our passage concludes... Jesus exhorts the lawyer, go and do likewise. Do that. Or, to put it another way, you know, in light of the first question that you answered correctly, you know, about loving the Lord your God with your whole person, then work that out, man, and love your neighbor in the same way. See, for the lawyer, neighbor is a noun. It's someone to whom duty is owed, an obligation. And as a result, if there's a way I can get around it, all the better. But for Jesus, neighbor is a verb. It's something you do. You're neighborly. You give people life. And in return, you receive life for your good works. Jesus' words for the lawyers, or for the lawyer, those are his words for us. Go and be a good neighbor. Which begs the question, am I? Am I? However you answer that question reflects your understanding of Jesus. Is he God as revealed in last week's passage, or is he just an obstacle? an annoyance who really keeps me from doing what I, what I want to do. To be the kind of neighbor that Jesus wants us to be, one who is compassionate, one who is merciful, requires that we recognize the kind of neighbor that Jesus was to us. Someone who died to save us when we were sinners, Romans chapter 5. Someone who showed us mercy when we had no mercy, 1 Peter chapter 2. Someone who forgave us much so that we can love much, Luke chapter 7. One author puts it like this. You can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out 
that God hates all the same people you do. But when the lesson of the merciful neighbor becomes a reality, it will reveal that we're responding to Jesus for who he really is, the Lord, the Son of God, the one by whom and through whom the kingdom of God has come near. And it's not just who we want him to be, my personal Jesus, whatever that is. As we become merciful neighbors, it reveals that the kingdom of God is truly in our midst. Let's pray. Father, the events in Buffalo, New York, Laguna Niguel, and recently Uvalde, Texas, remind us that gods created in our own image are worshiped by way of hatred and death. May we worship you on your terms so that we can respond to you and those among whom we live with compassion and mercy. And may that begin right here at Grace so that others may know and be encouraged by the fact that the kingdom of God is truly in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.